In episode 140 of the Futurized podcast, the topic is when will conversational AI get real? Our guest is Joe Bradley, chief scientist at Live Person. In this conversation, we talk about what machines already do better than humans and muse on the timing of future progress. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics or you're looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, which we always appreciate, we've got the episode categories and you can find those at futurized.org slash episodes. These are collections of our favorite episodes organized by topic, such as entrepreneurship, trends, emerging tech, or the future of work. That'll help new listeners get a taste of everything that we do here, starting with a topic that they're familiar with or want to go deeper in. Joe, how are you? Hey, Tron. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm good. How are you? I am fantastic. And, uh, you know, there's always a good day to have a former opera singer in uh, residence, uh, physicist, uh, AI expert, and uh, also former teacher uh, on, you know, on the line. This is uh, what I do. Yeah, you, uh, you, you got, you got most of the good stuff in there. I'm trying to think if you, if you missed anything. I, I think you got, I, I think you got most of the smorgasbord. So well done. Well, so the opera singer part is, is uh, you know, I, I haven't really tested this on uh, on this current recording platform. But would you be able to give me a sample? Oh like a man, very- that that is a that is a tall order, uh, and very embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> I was sort of joking because it's uh, it was something I should have actually told you about. But uh, do you, do people actually ask you this? So it it was a standing joke at Amazon that you know if we had a raucous enough party, it would it would um, you know result in me doing opera singing at the end of it. And every once in a while, I do a little singing. I did some stuff for a for a, you know a, a sort of would be film composer a few years ago and. And, and we did a little recording or two for his demo tapes and things. And I, I kind of want to get back into that world a little bit. But, but uh, you know, I've been busy. I have young children, so I've been a little bit busy and, and haven't had haven't had time for too many hobbies. Well, so there's another thing that I did miss. The, that's the math connection. You're a bit of a math whiz, so maybe maybe we can talk about pie for a second. The number or the food? Yeah, uh, I was thinking the number. <laughs> or maybe the you movie, know, the, Aaron, the Aronofsky flick, is a good one too. So here's here's an anecdote from my eight year old. This morning, I believe she said, "I have learned uh, ten digits of pi," and then she started. Actually, got she got to fifteen. Three point one four one five nine two six five is about as far as I can go. So, yeah. I I'm officially impressed too. It was kind of crazy, right? And I wonder if it just was her or if it was me who, uh, you know, for like four or five years, I've been trying to impress my kids with the 15 digits that I know. Um, Maybe it's school. Maybe it's not me at all. But it's just kind of funny how kids actually do, uh, contrary to what you might believe, they do listen. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think so. And I think when you when you couple the listening with a way to kind of like be impressive and you know, and like something that's challenging, like how many digits of that thing can I remember? You know, I think you, you hit a sweet spot with kids sometimes, certainly with mine, right? Like they, they want it. They're always asking me to multiply bigger and bigger numbers, right? They, they want that, like something about extent in numbers and mathematics is like, seems very compelling to, to my three children for sure. The, the other thing, and this is going to become relevant in a second. The other thing is I also have a couple of teenagers and, and I'm experiencing the opposite, which is I'm becoming exponentially less cool by the moment. Yeah, I, I see that coming. Mine are nine and two seven-year-olds right now. So we haven't gotten there yet, but, but they're definitely, I definitely now have to change my attitude a little bit and like like if I don't cool it up a little, if I'm just like, you know, hugging daddy and, oh, I love you. You're great. Like they start to be like, oh, come on. That's, that's pretty, you're too much. Exactly. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, look, that one of the reasons I brought this up apart from, you know, it's just uh, interesting uh, and it's something we shared uh, having kids, I guess. But uh, AI is a lot about common sense, isn't it? At the end of the day, because it's not just numbers. So there's something about um, understanding what humans care about versus what systems care about. Um, I, I wanted maybe, you know, just to make a super quick transition for you to explore a little bit, you know, throughout this conversation, what's hard and what's easy. Because, you know, memorizing 
you know, at the surface is actually easy. But on the other hand, the question is, you know, why did my eight-year-old think of this? And that's a much more complicated question. And what is it? What does she know about it? And what does she use it for? But of course, any machine could impress anybody with much more than 15 digits. It's not even a complicated problem anymore for a machine, to, at least to recite that number or to have it stored or whatever. But it is, of course, the question is, what do you do with that insight? And we are faced with so much, I guess it's a combination. There's an enormous amount of AI hype, and then there's an enormous amount of AI um, skepticism. So between the hype and the hope, and the, you know, it, it's getting pretty heated out there. And you are square in the middle of this, right? You've worked at Amazon on these things. You've worked at Nike on these things. And now you work at live person on these things, meaning conversational AI, the, the interconnect between these advanced technologies and actual human beings. Lay it out for us. Where, where, where are you now with what's hard? Where are you now with what's easy? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think, I think you're right that like, or like, I guess one way I'd, I'd sort of phrase what you just said is that, you know, sometimes common sense is hard for AI, right? And, and common sense isn't, isn't so common necessarily, or maybe better said is, is what are you kind of optimizing a system for, right? If you, you, know, you just think about building a simple system that's trying to predict, you know, a, a binary outcome, like, are you, you know, infected with a disease or not? And if you have a, if you have a, 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 a very rare incidence rate of anyone who's ever infected with the disease, you can make a system that, you know, is very, very accurate by simply predicting that no one has it, right? But extremely unuseful, right? In the same way that you could make a conversational AI that does all sorts of like amazing and interesting like conversational dynamics, but then tells you the wrong, you know, balance on your bank account. And like, all of a sudden that's not useful, right? Like, e even though it's, it's sort of doing this interesting chit chat stuff, it doesn't know what matters about what it doesn't know. It doesn't know what it doesn't know and it doesn't know what matters about that. I think, uh, you know, the, I think a really good example of this present day is in GPT-3, which for the record, I think is an astounding piece of technology. It's, it's a kind of, you know, these big language models are kind of natural resources. Now they take, you know, many, um, many kilowatts or megawatts of energy to train. You probably should measure them in, you know, days of Hoover Dam usage, right. And in, into how much energy it takes to train these models. Uh, and they do amazing things and GPT does amazing things, but it, it's not good at, at knowing when it misunderstands reality. So like my, one of my favorite examples is you can ask this model, like who was the president, the president of the United States in 17, you know, 78, and it'll get George Washington, right. And you go and you can ask it other dates and it'll get it right. And that is awesome. But then you can also ask it, who's the president of the United States in 1654, when there was no president of the United States, and it will give you an answer, right? It'll actually give you a sensible answer, somebody who was kind of a presidential or like figure in the colonial world, but it doesn't have that, you know, that same interrupt that you and I have about like, okay, like that, that question doesn't, doesn't really make sense. Now there are ways you can work around that. There, there's like more nuance to the story, but, but fundamentally, um, one of the things that's so hard about conversational AI, it, it illustrates this point, which is, you know, it, conversational AI isn't just about language, uh, even though that's the medium of conversation. Useful conversation for you and I, you know, has a tethering to, you know, our, our reality, you know, it, it, things that are very beyond language, our understanding of space, our understanding of the systems like our bank account that uh, that exist and that we have to work with and, and some abstractions associated with them uh, that are you know, very meaningful and having a right conversation. So, so I think, look, I mean, I, I, that's all kind of high level stuff, but, but where are we is we're, we're in this really interesting place where we're starting to figure out how to use machine learning to solve pieces of this puzzle. Uh, and, you know, by and large, what conversational AI kind of splits into, you know, understanding the language and handling the dialogue, right? So you got your NLU domain, you got your dialogue management domain. And I think we found really useful ways to use machine learning in NLU uh, in, in order to help a system interpret or structure, you know, text into a structured form of data that can do something with. 
But at least in industrial systems, you know, we haven't found uh, really great working models yet on how to make the dialogue handling, you know, it, it fundamentally driven by machine learning. Uh, you know, this is most most of the systems, all the systems you interact with that are commercial systems or systems, they're fundamentally still based on rules. Uh, you know, there, there's some adornment there. There's some subtlety there. I'm not saying there's no machine learning in the dialogue, but it's it's basically the the core branches of the dialogue tree are, are rules driven. Uh, and so so I think what what that adds up to for a lot of people or, or, or the the. Like this fact, this reality is sitting adjacent to a whole lot of hype about how, you know, that, that really came out of a, you know, kind of a chatbot movement from, you know, going going back a ways, but really that hit its zenith kind of 2018, 2019, when there were all these startup companies coming around and saying like, hey, we're, we're, we're just about to go and replace your whole customer service world. We're just about to replace your sales team. We're just about to replace all these commercial interactions with this like perfect AI. And all you got to do is hand us some data. Let us go away for a couple of months and come back and and we'll give you this thing. And, and nobody, you know, the reason you and I don't have interactions like that in our daily life is there, there was a lot of snake oil in some of those promises uh, and, and doing the work well, doing it really and, and making and industrializing it, commercializing it, you know, it, it, it's, it's like anything that's hard, right? There's a lot of nuance, a lot of nitty gritty to it. Uh, and, um, you know, it, I think while we still have a long way to go, like we're, we're, we're very much not at the place to kind of sum up, like we're very much not at the place where, where you can go and like build the system that's going to have all these useful conversations with you and solve all your commercial problems, you know, easily. But we very much are at the place where, you know, meaningful fractions of what people are talking to companies about can be accomplished by reasonable automations. Because a lot of these things, you know, a lot of these conversation volumes are uh, are problems that you that you can today go solve on a website if you really you know, if you knew where to go or if you were of a mind to go and do your password reset or, you know, change your address, things like that. So there are these use cases that are very meaningful that like today people are handling uh, that can be handled by machines. But it's it's this process of like building up, you know, the, the solutions to those problems that are driven by conversations and then brands like, you know, sort of treating that like a product in the same way that they treat a website like a product. Uh, as, a, as something that they have to kind of like build and maintain and grow and improve at and have metrics around, you know, yada, 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 all the stuff we learned over the last 20 years. So, Joe, there are many directions. Uh, I mean, getting many questions from, from what you're saying here, but let's start just back with GPT-3. So GPT-3 follows GPT-2 and GPT-1, and it is OpenAI, I guess, which is this consortium um, that have produced it. And one of the waves you know it's sort of making is the ability to mimic writing that was at least how they kind of launched it and uh, you know like the whole computer writes its own texts uh, but then it sort of falls short a little bit on, on common sense but i'm intrigued by this idea that these consortia are needed so it's not just private sector actors out there what is one reason why a lot of ai moments uh you know in throughout history have been more kind of like public project, like collective projects, or there at least been collections of things that have been collated by by many, not just sort of one individual company or 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 even one little academic environment. What is it that, it, why is it that the larger teams kind of come into play in this? It's not an area, it seems, where one wizard can kind of figure out an enormous amount. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true of a like historically of a lot of just like that that statement actually transcends the science and AI space altogether, right? If you look at um, you know the public works projects that that led to like interstate building in the in the United States, right? Post Great Depression, uh, it, it, you know, if if you look at uh, the Linux operating system is another great example of something that's built by this community. Uh, and I mean, you know, I think you can always make arguments that, oh, like a private enterprise could do X or do Y, you know, if they were situated and oriented in the right way. But I, I think one of the things that there's a there's a sort of like uh, it, when when you can have a community that come, where the where the the multiple perspectives of the contributors come together in a coherent way, 
right? You, I think you have something very powerful, right? And I think Linux is a nice example. Like, you know what the goal is and you have like all these great programmers from all over the world contributing to that goal. And there's some standards and some, you know, human organism and some passion, you know, it, it's almost it, it like, like I, I do think there's a little bit of extra passion when people are, you know, building something because, you know, it's driven by what they care about, not necessarily driven by them trying to make as much money as possible. Um, not that there aren't great commercial applications, but but I think there is that like I'm on a mission. Uh, and, and I think if you acquire that and if you and if you have the right diversity of backgrounds, opinions and thoughts and you can aim them at a coherent goal like that's your recipe for success. And, and I think to your point, like some of these, you know, non-commercial enterprises like that that like sort of you know sequence of events or like combination of factors come together quite naturally but on the other hand joe there is a a real place for commercial product packaging uh if you maybe want to entertain sort of that notion i mean you know one thing is to have a gpt3 or to have whatever community or even just linux but then the real power uh, commercially, it doesn't come together unless you package it in, ve in very specific ways. What, what are some? So you said in 2018, I guess it was kind of the larger sort of ch attempt to kind of coin chatbot as a functionality that could replace certain things in business. What are some better ways that you see emerging? You know, with maybe the company you work for now, or or even just a larger movement working on conversation AI. What are some of the more realistic products that you guys are pitching, selling, developing? Even just like kind of what product directions does AGPT three or you know a GPT yeah. X generation lead us toward? Well, I don't think the fundamental ideas behind you know, where people wanted to take chatbots or conversational AI three years ago in a commercial setting are totally wrong, right? And so, you know, I think you start, but I think what you started to see are there, there is this emergence of a few platforms that people use to build these things, because I think what, what was missing from the equation back then was this view of like, hey, this is a product that I'm going to go create, you know, my conversations are a product and I have to go create them. It's going to take me you know, time, care, and feeding to do that. Uh, so, so I think, you know, it's not that there was like this fundamental like misunderstanding of what could be done or, or what was important to be done, but I think there was a fundamental misunderstanding of like how to use the tools that really exist today to go and and um, solve real problems that like have enough volume to actually make you know, some impact on a business. So, and I think, I think there's good reason you started to see, you know, a little bit of a consolidation in the space. Um, I, I think the, the most important thing and the hardest question that I, that I feel passionately about in a lot of this, or maybe the most urgent question that we have to answer to get conversational AI right is like, what is a good conversation? And how do you know when you find a good conversation? Uh, because even if you like, if you literally go and ask, if you, you have a, some sensible conversation quality rubric, uh, and you go and you know you go and ask humans to annotate conversations and say, was this a high or a low quality conversation? You only get agreement there about sixty five percent of the time, right? So there is this fundamental problem of like, what does good mean? That's like very contextualized, right? And very much like, well, what problem is this conversation trying to solve? Or is it trying to solve a problem at all? And like, what is the domain of what's allowed for, you know, the system to do, right? All those questions kind of filter into like what good means. And I don't think, personally, I don't think the industry is focused enough on providing answers to that question and, and allowing, you know, like answers to that question that are good and nuanced enough. And then allowing that answer to feed its way back into the system. Because I think a lot of what, what everyone hopes, when you look at conversation, if you're new from machine learning and you come to conversational AI, almost everybody has the same hope, right? They sit down and they say, okay, cool. I got conversations coming in. I got, you know, a system. It's, it's, they're happening. I'm going to measure something about them. And then I'm going to like close the loop. And then I'm going to like have some machine learning process that's going to learn to get better and to self-optimize, right? Because you can do stuff like that in the domain of product recommendations. Uh, you can do stuff like that in, in, in a range of domains. We're very successful. 
but the space of what a, what language is and what conversations are about is so mathematically vast in a different way than like teaching a computer to play a game is that you 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 start you if you want to have meaningful feedback in systems like that and you want to really get machine learning going you have to have a really different way of looking you have to have a much more nuanced way of looking at success well, this reminds me of something. Uh, I mean, I was recently listening to a, a podcast with Kai Fu Lee, you know, uh, who wrote uh, this book about, uh, you know, essentially the situation with China and AI. And one of his big things in, uh, you know, I think it's called AI superpowers. And one of his big things is that China has so much uh, access to, to data. But one of the things that I'm thinking is, I was one of the first to get Alexa. And Alexa has been out there in beta and, well, perennial beta, I would say, for, you know, almost forever, right? By, in, by sort of internet standards now. Um, but it hasn't gotten exponentially better. Is that because, and, and this is, brings me back to this Kai-Fu Lee point, it's not just that quantity of data in my mind, right? It is, if, if you have data in a focused context, a lot of data will really help you. But even with the vast amounts of data, and you know, you you worked for that company, that that Alexa presumably already now has access to, is it that they chose so many domains at the same time that 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 this is taking uh, quite a bit of time in sort of computer years? It's not like you can't really measurably think that Alexa is really different from like one year to the next. At least for now, it hasn't. That hasn't been my experience. Is that just because? They are were trying to kind of gobble over conversations in the home with this enormous grasp. Uh, you know, you might think that in the home, you know, talking to your daughter who's eight years old, like these conversations are simple. But even if even if it is the case that Alexa eavesdrop on all kinds of conversations, you know, in all American and you know uh, European homes. Is it, is it just that the territory is so vast that the classification engines just are really struggling? Or is there something else going on? So, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. So first of all, just to be clear, I, I don't think Amazon is listening in and, and recording data for conversations that are on Alexa relevant. Like, that's just my feeling, having worked at that company, knowing how they how they tend to operate on data. And they're pretty careful with it. So, so I don't think they've got this data set of like, you know, you talking to your spouse or something that is that is then going in and training the model but i do think they're training where they can on on your conversations with alexa itself yeah uh, and and then i but i think that's part of the problem right so if you think of what are those conversations with alexa right that's that's a very limited domain of so it's the opposite of what i said essentially it's that you think that they actually have too limited of a data set not not too vast because i was initially it's, thinking it's vast it's in vast. size right? right but it's it's limited in scope and and if you think about that Alexa transaction or that Alexa conversation, it is they are almost all transactional. It's like turn off the lights, turn on the music, you know, maybe you play a game with this thing, right? But you wouldn't sit down and be like, you know, imagine trying to work through understanding your telephone bill with this system, right? Like that's that that already is too complicated. Let alone like, hey, you know, help me get help me get more fit, or help me learn to knit, or help me acquire a new life skill. Like, it's not. There's there's no conversations like that to draw from, and those conversations are fundamentally different in character and and you know extent of variation and type of language and and just really types of even basic conversational moves that you make. You know, one thing that strikes me is that I have never been trained to talk to machines. I mean, it sounds kind of stupid, but you know, should there not be a subject at school that says talking to machines because? You know, we learn all kinds of languages and, you know, I'm not, I'm not talking about code. I'm talking no, about it. conversational, because essentially this is going to all, it's going to be contextual for a while and you tell me for how long. So what that means is that if you're going to actually learn as a consumer to speak to these chatbots over time, you're going to need to know who am I dealing with? How is this developed? What is the rule-based system that it's based on? Or what other some sort of explorational you know, algorithms might this be based on? It seems to me it's pretty fundamental kind of consumer knowledge. Yeah, I, I we're missing. I mean, I think... So, you know, the on some level, the point of a natural language interface is so that you don't have to be trained, right? So there's like this funny 
like, I, I think you're right. Like today, and we do kind of get trained, like we all sort of got trained on talking to search engines, right? We all know how to use those. And that training, of course, has evolved over time. Like the way you use a search engine today versus the way I would have used one in 1997 is actually quite different um, and, and much closer to natural language. But there's still, it's still like, I know kind of how to, how to talk to this thing. Um, I, I think a, a lot of, like your point's dead on and we've done qualitative research on this, right? We've seen that, you know, people typically when they interact with a conversational AI, at least in the, our kinds of context for where live person, you know, we're talking about like a business context, you know, commercial context of one form or another, they do one of two things. They either treat it like a search engine and like a particularly dumb search engine where they'll just say like two words, like bill pay, you know, and like, and they'll be confused or they'll type that and they'll be confused when, you know, the system, you know, or doesn't quite know what to do with, with some of these statements. Uh, or they'll do the, the exact opposite, which is like the paragraphs of text, you know, like as if you were talking to a human and explaining all this contextual stuff. Uh, and both are quite natural choices given our backgrounds. Uh, and a lot of the challenge in dialogue management, like that second choice to give you the paragraph of information illustrates, I think, what better what complicated conversations are really like like we think of conversations a lot of times like me throwing a ball to you and you throwing a ball back to me and me throwing a ball back to you but probably a better model is like you and I staring at like a picture that we're kind of painting together and I'm like setting up some context this is how most how a lot of like complicated human conversations goes like I'm setting up some context and you're saying like oh yeah no is that leaf like really green maybe it's green like this I'm like yeah that's a green one and then oh yeah and the ground is brown and we settle this context settle this context and then once the picture's painted solving the problem is fast right and and so you know we don't I think I think it illustrates one of the challenges in the relationship between natural language understanding systems and dialogue management systems is the natural language understanding actually has to be quite a bit better than it is today because for any complicated conversation, there's a lot of context to set up and all that context is like co-referenced together. It's like, you know, the, the account, the bill, just to think of mundane examples for a minute, the account, the bill, the type of charge, right? Like all these are connected into a little bit of a hierarchy that then like it's actually quite complicated NLU project to to take like seven different statements that you've made and map them into that hierarchy, you know, and then but then once you do that, now you have a manager that can can kind of start to do something. But then the choice of things it could do is, is of course, quite vast. So I, I think one critical point that people often miss uh, is that even though we've made tremendous ad advances in natural language understanding in the last 10 years, um, and even more so in the last three or four or five years, uh, again, like the, the, the watermark and the benchmarks are still far simpler, even the academic benchmarks. And there are some good recent papers illustrating this. Um, but uh, even the academic benchmarks are far simpler than what you and I come to expect when we talk to each other day in and day out. So, so we still have farther to go and there's still like a lot of domain knowledge that has to be put into these systems in order for them to like fully understand you and paint that picture together. Uh, I hope that we can do that well enough. And I think that we can do that well enough in the coming years that, you know, it won't make sense to put people in an institution and train them for two months to, you know, to, to figure out how to talk to the computer. Because in the end, like to me, that defeats the purpose of, of the interface in the first place. Interesting. So I consider myself, or actually, in terms of how I live my life, I am a professional conversationalist, right? So I'm a podcaster. Some podcasters, and nothing wrong about their designs, but they have very, very pre, uh, preset questions. And, you know, I sometimes send questions to the people I interview, but I try to say it's more for context because I don't actually want answers to those questions. Like my podcast, no one would listen to them if there was always... Three introductory questions, followed by three follow-up questions, followed by these three questions, and then it's over. <laughs> so it's just kind of funny. Like I would never, and and if when I prepare for a interview, I spend far less time kind of finicky, you know, uh, like finalizing questions or sort of. It's not about the questions themselves. Of course, it's about what kinds of things am I wondering about, but you prepare the context. And then you see where the conversation goes. What will be the year when a machine is going to have a conversation with me 
and passed the Turing test, like let's say you know our camera didn't work and you turned on your AI, how long will it be until Joe Bradley, uh, the avatar, passes the Turing test? And you know, for context, the, the the test that I wouldn't be able to tell that you were a computer version of yourself, you know, with your voice, your intonation, your thoughts, but pre-recorded or at least kind of like set into motion by you pushing a button and, you know, you uh, being in your garden or, or talking to your kids and then just checking in on this avatar or this conversation. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, like I, I probably am going to have a hard time picking a year. So I, I, I freely admit that might be disappointing and I apologize for my weakness in that regard, that that's going to be tough. But I think we, I think there's some cool stuff to talk about here too. Like, you know, in some, it wasn't quite the Turing test, but the launch of GPT-3 as heralded by it writing an article about itself, I think is a kind of like mini version of a Turing test or, you know, a de or a degenerate version of it or something, however you want to talk about it, where like you read that article and you don't know, right? That looks like a real article to me, like to everybody. And and there's lots of stuff, you know, you can have a dialogue uh, or, or, or with with the system, you know, there are, and, and it feels very realistic. Uh, already. So I think, but I think the Turing test is like, is in some ways, it gets part of the problem. And it's, a, it's obviously all like Alan Turing was a brilliant, brilliant guy. And it's a brilliant way to phrase this, but I would extend it a little bit too, to be like, not only do I want to have a conversation with the machine, where the machine is like indistinguishable from a human, or maybe I want to or not, but not only is that a meaningful thing, but it's also meaningful that this machine you know, can tell me things that like have a basis, like clearly have a basis in reality, right? Or, or can kind of be tracked back to, um, you know, beyond it, it, it being really clear with words, but can I, can I have a conversation with it that is, that is functional and goes somewhere, right? And, and where it, it um, you know, it's correct on the facts and even knows what facts are, right? Because I, I think like, I don't just want to be, uh, you know, kind of waylaid or, or confused into this assessment, you know, because this thing is like really good at navigating the conversation and making me feel like I'm talking to a human, like I actually want it to, to say things that are relevant for my reality and, and, and like my basic circumstances. Like I'd like to have a, uh, an assistant that could help me learn things, right. They could help me go find papers on the internet that I could have this like conversational interaction with. And, and is it good at that becomes to me is as important a question as, you know, does it feel human? I think that's, that's fascinating. And uh, that brings the question, you know, are we working on systems that are doing the right things? Because you could sort of say email, for example, right, uh, is actually reproducing the idea of sending a letter in a digital form. So it was kind of a, carbon copy of a way that we previously used to communicate that then did change quite a bit when it turned electronic, but it was still based on the concept of me formulating something asynchronously, asynchronously and then sending it off as like a pushing the button, you know, putting a stamp on, and then, you know, you sort of receiving it and reading it at your leisure. And of a um, certain size, too. Sorry not to interrupt, but like of a certain size, like there was, and that was right. maybe one of yeah. the first things that yeah. changed is like that size got much smaller than an actual letter, but it's still, it's this like slow asynchronous communication because that content can be big. But then, but then if you then look at, uh, you know, I have Slack open, for example, that's a more of a message based system. You know, we're not dealing with computers, I'm still talking to people, but I am thinking about those conversations very differently. They are much shorter, they're much more real time. Even if they're not real time, they are actually different in nature. How, what is kind of your take on the kinds of things that the conversation AI products uh, that you build or others are building right now, what, what, what sort of use cases do you have in mind? Are you tr still trying to kind of reproduce, like you said, uh, automating the cell phone bill because that is 10% of a telco's traffic. So that's obviously a commercially relevant. But are there other more interesting use cases that don't directly emanate from yeah. 
bureaucratic problems in traditional business. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think that it's like, what are we focused on today? And what are like, what problems are we focused on solving today? And what problems are we gearing up to solve? Uh, and then how do we do that? So I think, yeah, as far as what we're focused on today, it is a lot of these like, well, we got, I, I've got a real annoying business problem I have to go solve with a brand. Wouldn't it be nice if I could just be like, you know, hey, hey, system, like, I want to make sure my credit card works when I travel to Germany. And then like, that's all I have to say, right? Like, so, so there's a whole host of use cases like that, that I think are going to make yeah, our lives a little Just let me easier. set up the context here, Joe. The, the yeah. reason I'm asking this is that for most technologies I know of, the real innovation in those technologies is not the use cases they were set out to solve. The real breakthroughs happened in other domains and they, they sort of were spin-offs of that original intent. People were working sure. really hard for 10 years on one thing, you know, problem A, and then turns out this technology solves problem B. Yeah, and I think what, what like A problem B is for us uh, is, uh, is really around, like I would say in the abstract, is conversations that remove some cognitive load from you and, and are actually helpful in your day-to-day -day life, right? And so some of the examples I mentioned before, like, you know, I want to get in better shape, right? Or I want to learn, like, I want to learn to knit. It's like one that comes to mind for me because my wife has recently learned to knit and now she's really good at it. And I, I, I am terribly impressed by her. Uh, but I think... There's, you know, there, there's ways that you do, like you go and you assemble content on YouTube that you're maybe going to watch. You go and, um, you know, you read a book or you, um, you know, or you, or you might like keep a diary or a journal or something of your progress and you might want to track all this stuff. Like, so I think you could start to see like, hey, if I can have a conversation with a system that can actually store and remember information like that and understands my larger goal and like helps me come up with a way to go and achieve it and takes care of all the nitty gritty details that, you know, are kind of a pain to have to remember and have to deal with, you know, that's a system I think that would be tremendously useful and interesting uh, for all of us and, and isn't like this sort of scary, like, oh, it's the AI that's going to come and take over the world and tell you how to live your life. It's, it's an enabler, uh, and, and, and like a load reducer and, 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 you know, kind of like a, a, a little mini assistant to carry around with you that, that can like meaningfully make you become something that's a little bit better, right. Or become, or change in the way that you want to change. So, so when I, and to me that, you know, I think it, to some people that probably sounds like, well, that's like one, like that's one small step from take care of your telephone bill. But from a scientific perspective and from a, you know, from like a technology perspective, it's a huge leap, right? They're, they're vastly different use cases to try and solve. Uh, and I think when products like that make their way into the marketplace that are really useful in these ways, it becomes like that is also qualitatively like quite a different universe or quite a different world that we're living in. It's it's fascinating to me, and I think you and I seem to be a little bit in the same camp there. But there are others who come on this podcast or or, or want to come on this podcast to who are more speaking to the AI becomes God argument, which I find some somewhat frustrating a little bit because the the kind of innovation they're talking about there, you know, the guys who talk about kind of, you know, uh, a future not too remote where AI will surpass us. And, you know, there are all these uh, terms about that. Um, you're in this space. How far-fetched is, is that thinking? And, and what is it that makes you, it seems, uh, so spend so little time on that kind of argument? I mean, I think to some degree, it's like, it's hard to know. Uh, and so it's, it's hard to know whether or not to be afraid of that. And, and it's hard to, it's actually kind of a thing that will probably be, if it's, if it ends up happening, it'll probably be very hard for anybody to do anything about it. So you're almost like, well, we're either going to like get sucked down that rabbit hole and like, the world's going to go crazy uh, or crazy good or crazy bad, who knows, or we're not. Um, so, so there's a little bit of like willful, well, you know, that, that, that might be something that, that we can't really put too many reins on in the first place. 
Uh, so let's go forward and try and do smart things along the way. And, and we're going to have to see where we get. Uh, it's also that like, I mean, if you look at, but that's not all of it. Also, if you look at the way, you know, we build systems today and, and how they work, you know, they tend to be very domain bound. Uh, I think we'll see the growth of these kind of domain bound systems further, like f way before we'll see something that, you know, comes in and, and kind of knows everything and can do everything. Uh, but I, I don't know if that's a particularly good answer to your question. I, it, it doesn't I think feel it's, like a particularly practical intellectual pursuit right now. Like it's far enough removed from where we are. Uh, it's, you know, it, it, like the consequences of it, like are, are great enough that, that I think we, of course, we should be thinking about it from a philosophical perspective, from a building perspective, like there's nothing like that in front of us. There's no, you know, GPT-3 is maybe one of the closer things. And like, it's very, it's like, its entire universe is the the membrane of language, which is like it's this little two-dimensional space surrounding a real three-dimensional reality. You know, it, it's not, uh, it, it has no will to take action. And I, and I fundamentally don't know like how a system like that or the way that we're building them today actually would acquire a will. You know, where, where does that come from? And, and, you know, does it, would, would such a system even want a will? Like, you know, we've got that, that sort of, when you show up as a human, you, you end up imbued with that somehow. Uh, but is it a necessary fact that a really, really intelligent artificial intelligence would have that? Like, I don't even like, that's a hard question to even imagine. How do you answer it for sure? It's, it's funny though, because I guess algorithms is a way to outsource human decision-making. So, you know, I would say if I worry about anything, it is the fact that technologies always enable people to do certain things. So I'm much more worried by technology sure. plus bad people than I am about bad technology. First off, because there is no proof yet of any bad technology developed independently of people that I have ever heard of. Uh, but there's ample proof of bad people using tools for really, uh, you know, destructive purposes. And yeah, I think one of that my, problem we can't get around. One of my favorite, like, so Black Mirror, right? I don't know if you've watched that, but I think one of my favorite frightening episodes of Black Mirror is the one about the dog, uh, where it's this lady getting chased down by this robotic dog that's like a, like a big guard dog, and they they sort of like cause, uh, you know, a lot of strife in the world because they, these things get out of control and and humans can't can't physically stop them like things like that seem realistic like that actually you, you could i mean I, we're a, we're a ways from that technology wise we're a ways from that robotics wise but but you could like that's a like program this thing to run out and kill everyone like yeah i you could see that like you could imagine building that you know super intelligent ai that is gonna you know take like kind of takes over the internet and you know like it's not that that couldn't happen but i think we're it's like a little bit more abstract and and maybe a little bit uh, uh, more distant. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess the only thing that sort of would change this equation, and and I leave that open. I, I have a bunch of guests sort of coming on from the more biological uh, AI domain, right? I mean, it's one thing when you're actually talking about. Uh, binary sort of technology systems built with sort of zeros and ones is a whole other thing when you're talking about embedding synthetic biology systems with AI, right? Because now you're actually talking about, uh, to a certain extent, you know, more and more complex biological organisms that are created, you know, partially by uh, technology. Uh, and that you are using more sort of biomimicry. Um, so, I mean, look, I, I don't think the argument is without its merit, but it's just interesting that it seems to me that a lot of the stuff that, you know, you are wor worried about today, having worked for some of the very biggest companies in the world, you know, working on these problems, it, it seems like the, the challenges you're having are, are quite different, right? I, I would agree with that. I mean, if you, and if just to, to, Digging to the point for like one more minute, like, you know, just thinking about like where our will to act comes from, 
you know, fundamentally, like it, it comes from these like very basic instincts to survive and persist and, you know, multiply, right? Like all these things that were kind of like bred into us via natural selection. Uh, and then you can have a lot, and then you have like a whole set of irrational biases sitting on top of that. And, and all of a sudden, whammo, you get these behaviors in humans that can be negative and evil and, and like cause lots of damage, right? Like this, this sort of base instinct combined with like a system in your mind that's used to interpret reality, namely bias, to, to kind of get stuff done. And I think, it, but, but that, that base spark of like, hey, I want to, you know, survive and multiply. And that's my instinct beyond everything else. Like, you know, are we going to program that into a machine, right? Like, and if you don't, does, does that life look like the same way that our life looks, the same way that animal life looks to us, or does it look really different? And what does it take to, like, you know, does that thing care? Like, it just fundamentally, does it care if it, enough to do damage to anything? Hmm. What are the limiting factors in your work today? So you have a professional career in conversational AI. What are the challenges, the limiting factors in your sort of organizational use of this today? Is it lack of human brains, lack of PhDs you can hire? Is it lack of budget so that they can go buy whatever they need? Is it lack of compute per se? Like even if they went and bought supercomputers, you wouldn't make any faster progress? Or, or is there something about the common sense kind of understanding we've talked about that sort of isn't humans money or compute it's it's something else i think it's some of the it's like the challenge of institutions right and the types of institutions that we can have in the society that we've kind of built for ourselves so i, I don't think it's easy to take uh, i think it i think these are long-range research problems that that like will take us time to solve no matter how many smart humans with phds you put in a room uh, and so I think it's it can be really challenging in a business environment, right, to create enough space and have the level of patience that's needed, you know, in order to make real progress against some of these things. It's very easy. And I've made a career in a lot of ways. It's very easy to, you know, bias towards like, all right, well, where's my like, where's my my next advance that's going to lead to an incremental piece of technology is going to take me just a little bit further, right? That's very much how Amazon operated. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's all this great work out there, but, but like how, you know, what's the metric that I'm going to go move with this technology? You know, how am I going to see that it worked and how am I going to see that it's successful in a commercial environment? And I don't mean to, I'm not trying to speak disparagingly about Amazon. I think it's an interesting company, but I think any company that exists in a, you know, in the marketplace where our companies exist today, that's publicly traded, you know, even if they're resisting a lot of those external pressures, Right. There is this like, you know, this challenge. I and, and I think, you know, maybe we could use a little bit more of the old Bell Labs days where we had had a little, you know, a little more freedom to kind of kind of develop for longer. Uh, that, that might be a, a means towards acceleration. I don't think all this means we won't get there. I just think it means we're going to take, you know, we're going to take these like off ramps on the main highway a lot to go and, and try and make things commercially viable. And then like someone else is going to pick that up and, and get back on the highway. And, and that's just a little bit less of, a, of an efficient process. Well, and maybe that's necessary. I mean, and, and maybe it's maybe. fine, I guess, for like for, for AI. But if, you know, for climate change, we may not have that time. I'm sort of I'm sort of yeah. reminded that a, a lot of people in kind of the media uh, assume that like if there is a big problem, all we have to do is throw some money and you know essentially some PhDs into that money pile, and then th these things will be resolved. Like in other words, it's just resources, whether it's human or financial. But I mean, you and I have surrounded ourselves with, you know, smart people. I certainly spend a lot of time with smart people. I was at MIT for a long time, and you know, I was with far smarter people. But it struck me that those smart people they only work on the things that motivate them and they right. only make massive breakthroughs in things that truly motivate them and even then enormously smart people go 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 down these back alleys and end up writing a paper that has no significance so it's not like even if the problem is big enough 
it, yeah. maybe the vaccine question sort of surprised me actually in that way because it turned out and and maybe it all depends i guess how you analyze this because you know some people had been preparing for that for for 20 years but but on the other hand they you know certain things certain institutional dynamics more than innovation actually just got out of the way and said all right we're going to approve all this it was actually scientifically all done but anyway no amount of sort of like decision making and resources could have produced a vaccine in three months like that's not what happened yeah and that's but- not going to be what happened i think i'm just curious you know with ai if, if someone said some ruler said we are going to have advanced ai uh, and joe you running it i mean that would scare you right because sure. like sure like manhattan project for ai you have a year and a half but I think I think your vaccine case is interesting. I think it cuts both ways, right? Like I, I didn't think we'd get a vaccine anywhere near as fast as we did. Like that is that is a, a sort of unprecedented speed as far as like as far as I know. And, and so I think I think you're right about motivation and will, right? And, and and I think I think you're also very right that when we take complexifying or like, you know, in, intermediating structures out of the way for people work gets done and things happen much more quickly. Now, can you put a one-year time limit on AI and, and, and go build the super robot? Like, yeah, that probably sounds too fast to me too. But if you were able, like if you had that mission and you could create that space and you could disintermediate the, the work from itself, uh, I think you would go much faster in the same way that we got this. Like it's a freaking almost a miracle that we got that the COVID vaccine so quickly and and I'm very, it's like the thing that one of the things that makes me proudest of humanity in the last 10 years. Yeah, it's it, it's funny. I mean, it was a little bit of a Hollywood movie, that whole thing. Uh, and I'm sure there will be some Hollywood movies about it, too. <laughs> you might be right. You might be right. Joe, what um, what are your uh, hopes and fears for the future then? So we've talked about uh, kind of this this animal of conversational AI and you're, you're clearly very motivated to to solving many of its aspects and 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 developing important products you're you're involved with uh, you know a company now even that uh, clearly does that you know with uh, with a live person w- what are your aspirations i guess and, and sort of hopes for the for the next decade when it comes to this very specific uh well it sounds very specific right now technology but but it yeah. might just turn into something quite yeah, different I, when when I, you, when you're done with it I mean, I think, look, we have this vast storehouse of information in the internet, right? We, we've, you know, the sum total of almost all human knowledge ever is in there now and, and pretty much everything relevant. So, you know, it, and that's making its way into devices and into, into physical space and all this. So, you know, if we can create a medium through which you can interact with that and like, and use it to to grow and I mean I'm gonna get a little little soft and cuddly here, like to grow and to change and to become a better version of yourself, right? Because I, I think that's possible with all that stuff, right? If you if you can just get your arms around and use it the right way. So if we can build an interaction layer that lets you do that and lets you make better use of it, then for me, you know, that's powerful. If we can use this medium to help you connect to other people who maybe want to want to change, want to grow, want to like have similar interests to you and, and like make those connections safe and like, and, and, and enrich your life. Right. To me, that's a really like, like, I think there's a lot of good to be done there. I think if you look at how social, like a lot of us are disenchanted with how social media has evolved, right. And the way in which it, you know, it tends to push people apart and create jealousy, right? And the way it interacts with your brain chemistry and uh, the, all the problems that that creates in people's lives and depression, suicide, right? Like all these things that can come out of these media. And obviously this was all existed before social media and will exist beyond it. But, but there is like, I think reality to the fact that that media impacts human behavior in a lot of ways that make us nervous. Um, like I want what we're doing with conversational uh, you know, research and development to cut the other way, right? To bring us a little bit closer together, to make our interactions a little bit warmer, uh, you know, and to to help us use this like incredible, you know, wealth of knowledge that we've created to help more and more people make use of that to do more and more things that they want to do and further themselves in a way that that's meaningful for them. You know, uh, I, I thought I was going to have this as the last question, but then uh, explain to me this, and it's a little 
strange, but we've talked around this these terms. The metaverse seems to be this idea that we're going to create this hybrid space where we're we're kind of building physical reality into cyberspace in a certain way. That's at least how Zuckerberg kind of frames it. I mean, you know, it's really hard to uh, to to know what, what what that is. But then on the other side, there's something that you and I have been talking about, which is which industry is really concerned with, which is making the material reality and infrastructure smarter. So like going the other way, starting yeah. with the reality and making reality smarter instead of going to virtual reality and making it more materially relevant, if you know what I mean. Yes, I do. In terms of those two approaches, conversational AI, it would seem to me, is actually instrumental for both. I don't know if you could call them use cases because uh, you know sure. I haven't described them you know, fairly for, for that. But can you just comment on those two approaches and, and whether conversations can and will be used, you know, materially in, in, in those two use cases? Yeah, I think it's absolutely material for both. It's kind of a, it's kind of like a safe bet in that sense, right? If you're going to, you know, interact in the virtual world, you know, it, it, like it's a natural UX, right? So it can be a natural UX for almost anything you want, right? We want to use language. Language costs us very little, Cognitively, like we just use it. We don't think about it. It's not hard, you know, it's not, not like doing long division, right? So, so anytime you're trying to manipulate something, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather make it, you know, either out of physical motion or out of language in order to solve a problem. That's just better. But I, I agree that like, like if I have to take a stance on which of those two worlds I want to live in, I want to live in the world where the, where the virtual sort of comes into the physical more not in an invasive way, right? I don't want like the Blade Runner, like I can't, I'm walking through the holograms every day and that's a big pain in the neck. But but I think we evolved and we're happiest and we're healthiest when we're living and, and existing in a physical space, right? I think that's what's natural to us. And if like, I want, like I love, I, I love all the stuff that's in the internet. I love all the stuff about the virtual world. Obviously I'm interested in technology, but if we can bring that out to us and it can be on our terms, Man, I mean, like all of a sudden we, we don't like very simple things. Like we don't have back problems so much anymore because people are up moving around in the world a little bit more. You know, people are taking better care of themselves. And and it just, you know, it's just a, 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 a more satisfying way to live, in my opinion, a more natural way for us to live. Well, on, on that note, then I, I will end. I think it's uh, it's certainly a, I think, uh uh, uh, quite po positive, uh, and there's a chance that we are certainly uh, getting there. But on the way, some people <laughs> insist on building uh, something in intensely uh, digital and uh, and sort of uh, I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see. But I, I thank you so much for for having expanded this notion of conversation and what it means in the age of technology. Because I think so many of these conversations, they stop with either someone saying, which I was about to say to your uh, booking agent, right? Because I'm I'm kind of tired of these simplistic chatbot discussions because mm -hmm. I get a lot of people who want to come on this show and, and talk about, you know, these fantastic chatbots. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think the conversation we had is a little bit more realistic, but it also opens my mind certainly much more to the fact that it's 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 dangerous sometimes to conclude too much from prototypes, and and yeah. that's certainly uh, something you you you've taught me. So thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's a great conversation. I really appreciated your time today, and uh, yeah, look forward to talking again sometime. Sure. Let's stay in touch. All right. Take care. You have just listened to episode one forty of the Futurist podcast with host Ronarne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was when will conversational AI get real? And my takeaway is that conversational AI is at its best when it's used to remove cognitive load. It may take computers a while to become conversationalists, but they may soon save us time. They are already saving businesses time, but the experience is not the same at the other end of the line. That will have to change. On the other hand, conversational AI is a natural UX and is not costly to put in place. So when conversational AI improves, it will change things. Is that five years or 20 years from now? Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.org or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may also enjoy other episodes of Futurized, such as episode 110 on the metaverse reality. 
episode 68, Industrial Grade Mixed Reality, or episode 16, The Future of Human Perception AI. Hopefully you'll find something awesome in these or other episodes, and if so, do let us know by messaging us. We would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. Futurized is created in association with Yegi, the Insight Network. Yegi lets clients create multidisciplinary dream teams consisting of subject matter experts, academics, consultants, data scientists, and generalists as team leaders. Yegi's services include speeches, briefings, seminars, reports, and ongoing monitoring. You can find Yegi at yegi.org. Please share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized, conversations that matter.